Welcome to the Christian Sexuality Podcast. This podcast is based on the Christian Sexuality Series, a 12-part video-based discipleship experience that seeks to help youth leaders, mentors, and parents engage their youth in important conversations around sex, sexuality, and gender. These interviews from our guests have all been previously recorded in a video interview experience. Today, your host is Claire Hilmick, and we are joined by author and speaker Dr. Gregory Coles. To start out our conversation, we asked Gregory what high school was like for him and if he came out to anyone. So there was exactly one person that I came out to before I turned 22. So any time when I started experiencing this uh, through middle school or high school or college, exactly one person who I came out to, and it was my brother John when I was in about seventh grade. And I remember that we had just come in from a rainstorm and both of us were drenched. And he asked me some honest question about sexuality that I just couldn't think up a better answer for. And so I I told the truth and I said, "Uh, John, I, I think I'm gay. And he, wanting to be reassuring, was like, oh, no, no, you're not gay. He said, you know, in puberty, you can, you can lust after anything. Like, you could lust after a mop bucket if you wanted to. He wasn't that flippant about it. But, but his, the only encouragement that he could think of, the only encouragement that I could think of, was the idea that I couldn't possibly be gay, that this had to be a phase that I would work through. And I figured probably the best way to work through a phase like that is to tell as few people as possible so that it is as impermanent as possible, so that the moment it goes away, you can scrub it out of your memory and pretend that it never existed. And so my ultimate ideal dream when I was in middle school or when I was in high school was the dream that I would manage to keep my mouth shut either long enough to become straight or until I died so that I could make sure that at the moment that I died, nobody would know that I was gay. And that was the happiest ending that I could think of. In listening to Gregory's story about his childhood, we asked him, how did Christians talk about gay people and how did that affect him? All my memories of hearing Christians talk about homosexuality before I came out are memories of people doing one of two things. Either they were making jokes or they were talking about how disgusted they were by homosexuality. And I had a strategy prepared for each of those things. If people made jokes, I went ahead and joked right along with them and tried to laugh at least as loudly as they were laughing. And if they called it disgusting, I just said nothing at all, except exactly one time when I remember a dear friend of mine, the topic of homosexuality came up and they said, oh, it's just so disgusting. And I said, do you think, do you think it's helpful or loving to refer to another person that way? And they said, well, I I wouldn't say that to them if they were here, but you know what I mean. And I said, what if I'm offended on their behalf? Because it was the only thing I could think to say that felt like it maintained a shred of my humanity in that moment. Gregory has an obvious love for Jesus. So we asked him to share about the pivotal moment when he truly understood God's love for him and how his life was forever changed as a result. There was a time when I was in 11th grade that I was scheduled to take a trip to a beach with my closest friend, Zach. 
Now, I grew up in Indonesia, and Zach also grew up in Indonesia, but had moved back to America, but was visiting me in Indonesia that summer between 11th and 12th grade. And we were supposed to take this trip to the beach, uh, and Zach got sick right before we had to leave. He got sick with a disease called dengue fever, which is pretty bad. I've had it twice, wouldn't recommend it to any of you. And because Zach was sick, we had to cancel our trip to the beach, and it was a major bummer, and so I processed my grief in the way that seemed appropriate to a boy of my age, which was that I stuffed it all down and played a lot of computer games. And the day that we were supposed to have arrived at the beach, the first day that we were supposed to be out on the beachfront and in the waves, I got a text message at 3.19 p.m. that said, please pray. And so we looked at the news and we realized that Pangandaran, that same coastal beach town where Zach and I were supposed to have been out in the waves, had just been hit by a massive tsunami. And I believe around 600 people died in that tsunami. And it is most likely only because Zach was sick that there were not two more dead. And I remember in the days after that tsunami, wondering how I was supposed to live my life as somebody who was so freshly aware of the fact that I should have been dead and could have been dead. And it struck me that if I live like someone who should have died and yet was spared from death, even by something that didn't feel like a good thing at the time, even by something I wanted to complain about, like Zach's sickness, that if I had been spared from death, then maybe that meant that everything that happened in my life after that moment was just part of the extra gift that God wanted to give me. That maybe the moment had passed after which I wasn't owed anything by the world anymore, after which my life didn't really even fundamentally belong to me anymore because I already deserved to be dead. And I think, it's, I think it's really notable that when the Bible talks about the shift that we make as we begin to follow Jesus, it describes it as a kind of death, that we follow him into death and into resurrection. That's the whole symbol of baptism, is that when we go under the water, we die with Christ and we're raised with him such that the life we live with Christ is no longer the life that we lived before. It's not the life in which our life belonged to ourselves, but it's a life in which everything about us belongs to someone else. And it's a lot harder to be mad at God for not giving you something that you felt like you wanted when you stop expecting that God owed you anything in the first place but you start to instead believe that all the rest of your life is just a gift given for you to give back to God again and again and to say, I'm still here as long as you want to keep me alive as this resurrected ghost. I'm still here and I'm still yours. We asked Gregory what gave him hope to continue calling himself a Christian in spite of the judgment he may have experienced or heard in the church. You know, one of the beautiful things about following Jesus is that you don't have to persuade anyone else 
that you're following Jesus in order to be following Jesus. And that doesn't mean that you can just go on and do whatever you want. And every time someone in your life says, hey, you may not be following Jesus, that you should just ignore them and be like, it's between me and God. No, no, no. Like you should listen to the people around you. But ultimately, your relationship with Jesus is a relationship with Jesus. And it's not a relationship that's mediated by way of someone else. And that was really important for me to remember in times in my life when I was forced to wrestle with the disconnect between looking at the God of the Bible and experiencing him in my own life and saying, I know this God, I love this God, but I don't always love the thing that I experience from the people around me who say that they also know this God and love this God. But there's a lot of freedom that comes when we remember that the people around us who love God love him as imperfectly as we love him. And if, if, we try, if we try to only follow God to the degree that we feel like the people around us are doing a good job of loving us well, then we'll never feel like God loves us as much as he actually does. Because no one else in our life is capable of loving us as well, as perfectly as God loves us. And so if we're looking to the Christian community in our life, no matter how good it is, if we're looking to them to determine whether or not God's love is perfect enough to receive us, we're always going to end up with a deficient view of God. But it's only when we look directly to God that we begin to see, no, no, in fact, no matter how screwed up the people around you are, and trust me, the people around you are screwed up because if you know how screwed up you are, just imagine all the rest of the people also being screwed up. The, the love that we need is the love of God. And when we're, when we're in touch with that love, then we're able to find grace for the community around us uh, and to experience God through that community, even when it's imperfect. To continue the conversation, we asked Gregory to unpack God's standards of obedience and his own journey of submitting to his authority. So when I was wrestling with the question of what it would look like to be obedient to God in the realm of my sexuality, there was a time when I was thinking about the, my need to be obedient to God, my need specifically as somebody who was gay, and it seemed really unfair because I was like, and everybody else just has that simple thing that they do that, that doesn't involve any obedience to God. And so I'm thinking through like, oh man, like I'm not supposed to lust after men, like I'm not supposed to watch gay porn, like I'm not supposed to, and, and at some point I had, to, I had to stop myself and be like, hold on for a hot second. All of these things that I am called to submit in the realm of my sexuality, the ways that I'm called to be obedient to Jesus, are also ways that my straight siblings in Christ are called to be obedient to Jesus in the realm of their sexuality. There are ways that my male friends in middle school and high school and college and beyond struggle with their sexuality that I do not. For instance, if you took one of my straight male friends and dropped him into a room full of naked women, he would find it very difficult to not lust in that moment. I, however, would find it remarkably easy to not lust in that moment. And so there's actually a kind of holiness that comes easily to me in ways that it doesn't come as easily for my friends who are straight. But there are also things specific to my sexuality that I wrestle with as I'm trying to figure out what does it look like for me to be obedient to Jesus. And I think in the end, 
all of us experience our sexuality in a way that is in some sense fallen, right? None of us are exactly what we were designed to be as perfect original creations. And yet, even though all of us bear the marks of the fall, we all also bear the fingerprints of a God who put us together with thoughtfulness and said in the moments that he created us, well, hot dang, that is very good. And so I think all of us have an opportunity as we follow Jesus, not just to ask, what is it that I'm called to say no to as I'm being obedient to Jesus, but also what are the things that God is inviting me to say yes to? As I say no to these things that God is asking me to give up in order to follow him, how does that free me up to say a particular and beautiful kind of yes that belongs specifically to me, specifically to you, and not to anybody else? Next, we asked Gregory to define the term gay. We also asked him if same-sex attraction is a sin. So when we talk about being gay, I think it's important for us to be clear what exactly we mean by that and to distinguish between a couple very different things that the word gay can mean. One of those things is simply the experience of attraction to the same sex. And by attraction here, I just mean broadly over the course of time, you find that you might have an attraction to a specific person. So when I say I'm gay, I don't mean that I am attracted to every man that I see at all times. I mean that generally over the course of my lifetime, the tendency is that if I'm going to be attracted to someone, it is going to be a man, even though I'm not attracted to every man that I see, though I'm sure many of you are very handsome. Congratulations. But it's important for us to distinguish same-sex attraction from particular moments of same-sex temptation where we might see a particular person and say, ah, I am tempted to lust after that person. And we need to distinguish those things from same-sex lust, which is when I don't just notice, but I notice, uh, and I dwell in a way that's unhealthy, in a way that makes someone else the object of my desire. And we need to distinguish same-sex lust from physical same-sex sexual behavior. Now, when we're asking which of those things are sin, I would draw the line between temptation and lust. The Bible is pretty clear that temptation itself is not a sin. Uh, we know that Jesus experienced temptation. We know that the, the Bible says when we experience temptation, God will give us a way out of temptation so that we don't sin. So to experience temptation is not sin. Certainly to experience a general pattern of attraction over your life is not sin. Once we move into lust, once we move into sexual behavior, that's where we start to talk about sin. So when I call myself gay, what I'm doing is naming the nature of my attraction over the course of time and naming the fact that when I do experience sexual temptation, which doesn't happen all the time, but happens enough, when I do experience sexual temptation, here is the way that I experience sexual temptation. Those are the things that I mean when I use the word gay. We asked Gregory if he chose to be attracted to the same sex. We also asked him how he feels when others say that gay people choose their attractions. I chose to be same-sex attracted exactly as much as you chose the experience of sexuality that you have, which is to say, not at all. For most of us, maybe there are a few of you who are like, I totally decided how I wanted to experience my sexuality. 
Congratulations, I would love to hear that story, incidentally. But for me, and, and for the vast majority of us, we don't choose how we experience our sexual attraction or our orientation. All we get to choose is what we're going to do about it, how we're going to steward the sexuality that we are given. I think a lot of Christians can tend to get really invested in this question of what causes same-sex sexuality, what causes somebody to be gay, is it nature, is it nurture? And I don't have much of a dog in that fight. I think uh, all, the, all the research that I've read seems to suggest there are some elements of nature, there are some elements of nurture, and they all blend together in this mysterious way, and boom, here we are. But none of that is particularly useful for me, because what I know is, here I am, this is my experience of the world, I haven't made any choices about whether or not I want to be attracted in this way, but I do get to make choices about what I'm going to do as a result of it. And so I would much rather spend my time answering that question, what does it look like for me to choose well, to live well, now that I'm here? I'd rather talk about that than quibble over what got us here. Sometimes people want to argue about whether or not God makes people gay. In my opinion, God makes people gay exactly as much as he makes people straight, which is to say that God has some sovereign power and authority over all of us, and he allows certain things to occur in the world. But I would never want to blame God for the fact that we are fallen human creatures. And whether we are gay or straight or anything else, we are fallen human creatures who experience our sexuality as something other than what God originally designed it to be. I, I find great comfort in the idea that God is not surprised by the fact that I am gay. It's not like I showed up, I turned out to be gay, and God was like, well, crap, I did not make a plan for this. God knew, God continues to know, and I think God can be purposeful in how he chooses to guide my story, despite the fact that I am fallen in a particular way. But the same is true for those of you who are straight, that God knew your story, he knew how he would allow you to be guided, and yet you don't get to blame God for the fact that you experience temptation to lust or have sex with people of the opposite sex. The Bible says, let no one say uh, when he is tempted, God is tempting me. So the fact that any of us, you or me or anybody else, experiences temptation is not God's fault. But it is, however, part of God's sovereignty to guide us through those moments and to help each one of us figure out the way that we individually get to follow Jesus. You know, sometimes people will ask me what God could possibly have against love. If there are two people of the same sex who want to love each other, what could be wrong with that? And I think it's important for us, first of all, to clarify exactly what we mean by the word love. Because love means a whole bunch of things. And for instance, when the Bible tells us, love your neighbor, what the Bible is not saying is that you should just go out and have sex with all your neighbors. I think when we talk about love, it's important to ask, what is the thing that is going to bring good to the person that I want to love. Love ultimately, before and after everything else, is about wishing and willing good for the other person. 
And God is absolutely thrilled when real, deep, intimate love exists between people of the same sex and between people of the opposite sex, between people who are married and between people who are not, between people who are related to each other. God wants love in all of these relationships. Sex, however, is a thing that God designed specifically for certain kinds of relationships. And wherever you think that boundary is drawn, whichever relationships you think are appropriate for sex, it's very clear that not every relationship that should be loving is a relationship that is meant to have sex as a part of it. Also, when we think about the question of why God might ask two people who are of the same sex and desire to be in a monogamous sexual relationship with each other, why might God ask those people not to be in a relationship with each other? I think one of the, one of the most helpful things we can ask is, why might it be that God is calling someone to say no in order to say yes to something better? Because God's no's are not given to us simply because God is a mean, sovereign cop who likes telling us that we can't do things. God's no's are given to us because he has real and good purposes designed specifically for us. And when he says no, he's guiding us away from things that are not part of those best purposes that he has for us. And certainly in my own life, there are times when I have experienced God's no with regard to same-sex relationships as something that felt mean. It felt like it was taking away from me something that I wanted. And yet, the longer that I live in obedience to Jesus in the realm of my sexuality, the more I find that there are things that I get to say yes to as a single person that I wouldn't get to say yes to if I had entered into the kind of sexual relationship that I so often found myself wanting. And I wonder if maybe it is in fact the loving heart of God that causes him to say no to us because he keeps wanting to nudge us more and more toward the good he has for us that's so much better than all the things that we thought that we needed in order to be happy. Next, we asked Gregory's opinion on whether or not you can flourish and be happy as a single person. So when I first came to the conclusion that God seemed to be calling me to be single for the rest of my life, there were a lot of assumptions that came along with that for me. And I assumed, for instance, that if I was single for the rest of my life, that would mean that I spent my entire life living alone, it would mean that I never had deep, emotionally intimate relationships with other people because I assumed those kinds of relationships were supposed to be reserved for marriage. It would mean that I would never have a friend to whom I was so committed that we would choose to live in the same place for the rest of our lives instead of just following whatever job offers we got until we died. It would mean that I would never get to be deeply involved in the lives of young children and see them grow up and get to be a part of them becoming who they were. I worried that being single would mean that I was condemned to a life of solitude. And it took a while for God to begin to change my heart on that and to cause me to see that actually none of those things are part of God's vision for singleness and celibacy. There's this wonderful moment in 
the New Testament in the Gospels, it's so good that it happens in all three of the synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And it's this moment where Peter has said, uh, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And so I just want to know if there's, if there's going to be something for us disciples. And I love the way that Jesus responds to Peter. What he says is, truly I tell you, there's no one who has left home or fathers or mothers or sisters or brothers or wives or children or fields who will, fail to, who will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. And I love the way that Jesus responds to Peter because what he doesn't say is, Peter, you idiot, you didn't give up a thing. Quit whining and go stand over by Thaddeus. Jesus admits that there is real loss and real sorrow in following him, that we give something up. And yet what he promises us in return is something so much better than everything that we had lost. He promises us very concretely a hundredfold the family that we lose. As somebody who is single and celibate, I often feel like there is a kind of family that I have lost. There's a kind of family that I have said no to. And sometimes I look at the world around me, I look at the church, and I wonder whether Jesus' promise to me is really going to turn out to be true, that I actually will find a hundredfold all the family that I have lost. But I think the promise that Jesus is making there is not just a sort of abstract promise that as if from nowhere we'll get a sense of warm fuzzies and happiness. The thing that Jesus is promising very concretely is he's promising us the family of God. He's promising that we will be family to each other. And what I've found in my own life is that when the church is really working well, the church is that family to me, and it's a family that's so much better than any family I could have conjured up for myself. And in the moments when the idea of the church as my family seems like a cheap substitute for having a wife and two and a quarter children and a picket fence, I don't think the problem is with Jesus' promise. I think the problem is that sometimes we in the church have failed to really live like family to one another. And I think there's an invitation here for all of us to step up our game and start to be more concretely family to one another, to actually open up the boundaries of our homes and our lives the way that we walk this world together so that we're not just family in some abstract passive sense, but we are really and concretely a hundredfold everything that we have given up in order to follow Jesus. So what does it look like if you believe in a historically Christian view of marriage, what does it look like to love gay people? Now, one thing we need to remember for starters is that there are a whole lot of very different ways of being gay. And so for instance, loving someone like me who is a gay person, which I hope that you will do, might be very, very easy if you have a historic Christian view of marriage. There might be some challenges that arise if you're loving someone who is gay and is not a Christian, or someone who is gay and identifies as a Christian but has a different understanding of sexual ethics. How do you love those people? And as we wrestle with that question, I would maybe encourage you to start by wrestling with the question, how do you love anyone in your life 
who either doesn't follow Jesus or follows Jesus imperfectly. And I hope that as you think about the answer to that question, you will have just thought of everyone you know, including yourself, that all of us either do not follow Jesus or follow him imperfectly. And the question that we get to ask in all of those relationships is, how can I be someone who demonstrates to this person my care for them as an individual and who takes whatever opportunities I can as it's appropriate to nudge them in the direction of Jesus? Now, nudging somebody in the direction of Jesus does not mean trying to convince them to make different choices with their life in order to make you feel more comfortable. If somebody doesn't know Jesus, I don't expect them to live like a follower of Jesus. And so the only conversation that is productive for me to have with somebody who doesn't know Jesus is, hey, there's this Jesus guy, he totally wrecked my life, and you should meet him. Beyond that, I just want to be invested in their life. I want to demonstrate to them how much I care about them, and I want them to be able to see through me a partial but still beautiful vision of the love of God. I want to be a conduit through which they can see how much Jesus cares about them. As for people who are following Jesus or who identify as followers of Jesus, but maybe don't share uh, your understanding of sexual ethics, or maybe they do agree with you on the historically Christian view of marriage, but they're having trouble living up to their own sexual ethic. How do you engage with those people? I would suggest that maybe it's helpful to engage with them in the same way that you engage on other areas where you have theological difference or where you see somebody living in a way that is not honoring to God, even though they share with you a certain theological understanding. And I think the best thing that we can do in those moments is not try to pester people toward Jesus. The holy pestering approach does not tend to bring people closer to the heart of God. So it's not super helpful to every time you see your gay Christian friend be like, hey, have you read Romans 1 recently? Don't do that. The thing that you can do in those relationships is continue to model the kind of radical love for Jesus that makes someone want to join with you in that radical love. And to say to them again and again, in as many ways as you can, not so much with your words as with your life itself, is there a way that Jesus wants to call you into a still deeper discipleship than you currently have? Is there a way that Jesus is maybe asking you to follow him more deeply? I hope that that's the way you interact with all your Christian friends, not just in the realm of sexuality, but in all the realms. I hope that all of us are always nudging one another closer toward the heart of God. So if that's your heart for all people, let that be your heart for gay people as well. To finish out our conversation, we asked Gregory what he would say to a Christian teenager experiencing same-sex attraction and feeling lots of shame because of it. When I was in middle school and high school, I remember feeling so much shame about my sexuality because there was a part of me that was convinced that it was my fault somehow or that even if it wasn't my fault that there was something I ought to be able to do in order to change it. Or that even if it wasn't my fault and even if I couldn't change it, there was still some way in which I was obligated to feel forever bad, to feel forever gross about the fact that this was my experience of the world, that these were the cards I had been dealt. 
And so if that's you or if that's a friend of yours who's feeling that kind of shame, I would just say God loves you. And God does not love you in the abstract sense because he's required to love everybody and he yells it to us through a megaphone. But God loves you specifically and he knows you specifically. And the shame that you feel around your sexuality is not shame that comes from God because God is not a God of shame. God is a God of hope. So if you're hearing messages of shame from your heart, from your mind, from around you, those messages of shame are messages from the devil. And you just need to inform them that they are not welcome. Because the voice of God speaking over you is a voice that speaks hope and life, that says that you are purposefully crafted in his image and that there is good that he is calling you to. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Christian Sexuality Podcast. Be sure to visit www.christian-sexuality.com to learn more about the video resource that this podcast is based on.